Broadcasting from Orchard Park, New York, it's the Midnight Freight Broker Podcast. Whether it's breaking news, tips to increase your business, or just some good old sports talk, this podcast is all about having a conversation about the world of freight. I'm your host, Nate Cross. Let's talk freight. All right, what up, Midnight Freight Broker Nation? Welcome back for episode 44. I am joined by special guest, Ben Kowalski today. Ben, welcome to the show. Morning, Nate. Happy to be here. Looking forward to it. How's the weather in sunny Florida? Uh, it's always beautiful. A little humid. <laughs> it's about 96, but real feel, I think today is 106, and that's about par for the oh, course. There you, go. So. you know what? So we actually have been, I think I was telling you this the other day, we've been in the 90s this week. Like We actually got a notification from our electric company telling everyone yesterday to try to reduce their power consumption because when everyone's running AC units here in, in, in Western New York, it just overloads the system. So good stuff. Yeah. But, we uh, couldn't, literally yeah. couldn't survive down here without air conditioning. I mean, these two months for us are like <laughs> January and February for you guys. Like you tend to stay in the house when it's negative, you know, a couple degrees or 10 degrees outside. That's this time of year for us. I go out in the morning. Unless the bills out. are playing. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Other than that, I pretty much so, only go out when the sun's coming up or going down. Hey, that's fair enough. Fair enough. Well, hey, so we're, we're going to get into a good discussion today talking about some fraud with the PPP and a little bit broader scope on, you know, what coronavirus is doing overall to the logistics community and, and trucking. So, but first, I want to give a little sports update here. So, let's start with some golf. I know you're a big golf guy, Ben. The the one big thing that, that I've seen lately, and I want your take on this, um, Obviously, with coronavirus and reopening, they're talking about what does it look like for for national sports when there's no spectators? Is it going to help players with their actual performance? Is there going to be, uh, you know, a de- degradation of their actual, you know, scoring and things like that? So the, the thing I saw this morning on ESPN talked about how in the PGA Tour, without fans being present and there being a, I guess, a, a better ability for players and, and golfers to focus on their game, they're playing much better than the same exact time last year, like three strokes over four days. So what are your thoughts? I know you had some, uh, you had a pointer on maybe a little bit of a cameraman. I think a little bit that was going on. And what's interesting, Nate, is that when I was first watching it, everything come back and, you know, golf was one of the, the first sports to get back without the spectators, there was a lot of drama around who was going to be miked. Um, and I think a lot had to do is I, I know you and I chatted offline a little bit about, you know, um, when Brady and uh, Peyton played in the, in the match with Mickelson oh, yeah. and Tiger, right? Everybody got used yep. to it. I think everybody really kind of enjoyed seeing this candid approach to golf, seeing the banter back and forth. You felt like you were actually out on the course with these guys. Brady repping really his pants. Cool. Yeah. And then, I mean, like, and honest, I think all of us, I mean, more so I'm a Steelers fan growing up was, you know, to see Brady struggle in any athletic sport was something I could definitely have appreciated. But I, uh, I think we could. The one, the one thing with Brady, though, I don't know if you saw this. He was showing off his skills. I think it was yesterday or the day before. Um, just taking these, like, videos of himself just crushing the ball down some fairway at some golf course somewhere. Just showing it off, tweeting, tweeting it over to, to Phil. But um, anyway, go ahead. And, and I think that's – and it's funny. Love Phil. And, and, I mean, obviously, you can do some outtakes – don't know what the other shots that maybe didn't make camera, but you know, the, the cool thing about that, I remember watching it was they pulled up their, um, their 
you know, their scores and you could actually see it based on, you know, what they ranked and what, and, you know, Manning played, I think 12 times in the past year, Brady had played four times. in I think the past three years, so, I mean, there's something to say about somebody that doesn't play that often. And, I mean, I think we can all relate to that. Anybody, even weekend golfers, when you spend four months in your house, I'm sure a lot of guys just getting out, guys and gals, a little frustrated getting out on the course, but it's still just nice to be out. But I think to your earlier point, you know, what it's going to be like for spectators, the first event that was out, like, I thought maybe they were just using easier pin placements to get the viewership up. But, you know, once you brought it up, it makes more sense, you know. Bryson won last weekend and has had a great showing over the past few events since this. And he flipped out on a cameraman, had a bad shot coming out of a bunker. I love it. Yeah, the guy followed him for like, it was maybe 15, 20 feet, but it was enough that it got under his skin and, you know, Bryson snapped at him. And he made a comment after that he's like, hey, you know, I know we're in the spotlight. That's the point. That's why we make this amount of money. But when people are trying to irritate you to get you to react, he's like, I kind of feel like that takes the sportsmanship out of it. And I kind of have to agree with that to some, to some extent. Yeah. And uh, in other sports news as well, with, with no spectators, it'll be interesting to see Pat Mahomes with his fat half billion dollar contract that he just signed without anyone there to actually watch him play. So half a billion dollars, $503 billion if, with all incentives or something like that. That's insane. Biggest contract ever. It's a boatload of money. And it's like, what is that going to mean when everybody starts signing next year, right? Like, what is that going to do to all of the salary caps? I mean, there's only so much money going around. That's the point of the cap, right? What is that going to look like next (laughs) year for everybody else? (laughs) Yep. That's, that's a good point. That's a good point. Play that sports. Uh, be curious to see how the, the summer pans out with any kind of changes. I know they they just last week said there's going to be absolutely no spectators at all in New York State. Every state's going to be different. We'll see how it, how it ends up, but um, curious to see how that how that goes. But anyway, we got a we got a good article that you had shared with me last week that I got an absolute kick out of. So Love I'm going to read. I'm going to read the headline in a couple of highlighted areas here, and then I want to talk about it, and then we'll get we'll go broader on the PPP part. But um, so this one comes from I couldn't even tell you which website. I'll put a link in the show notes, but it's called "Love and Hip Hop Reality TV Show Star Charged with Fraud of Coronavirus Relief Loan." Now, what does that mean for trucking? Well, we'll get to it. Guy's name Maurice Fain. So he was on Love and Hip Hop Atlanta. He Arkansas Mo. What is it? Is that his nickname? His nickname Arkansas was Mo? Arkansas Mo, which I think was my favorite part of the whole article. I'll be honest. I've never even heard of that show. Um, it sounds, sounds pretty, sounds like something else, but uh, yeah. we'll, we'll move on with it here. So Arkansas Mo, I guess his name is, obtained a loan for millions of dollars. Obviously that raises red flags. Um, so here's how he did it. He was, he's the sole owner of a Georgia corporation called Flame Trucking did his PPP loan application in April and listed that he had 107 employees and about 1.5 million in monthly payroll. So he applied for almost $4 million in a loan. He received more than $2 million from them and then allegedly used the majority of that to purchase jewelry, Rolex, bracelet, six carat diamond ring, Rolls Royce lease, making loan payments. And the best part, 40 grand in child support. So obviously he got busted and uh, they seized a bunch of money and all his stuff. But the guy just, you know, I never would have thought that, you know, you, uh, 
obviously you can see there's fraud potential in any kind of situation with big money like this, but the trucking industry, what are your thoughts? I mean, absolutely. I mean, this guy was literally robbing Peter to pay Paul, right? I mean, at least he's spreading the, the wealth around once he got it. You know what I mean? Like was paying his child support bill. Apparently he spent some of his money on the employees, but 85 grand in jewelry and he didn't spare any expense. I mean, a 5.73 carat diamond ring for himself was the part that just struck me. Like, I, I mean, oh yeah, I mean. Arkansas Mo, man. Savage. Absolutely. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, what do you, let, let's let's take a deeper look into this, right? Trucking companies obviously a have taken a big hit in everything with coronavirus, right? If less stuff is being produced because workers are not essential, so factories and businesses are shutting down. Less stuff is produced that naturally trickles down into the trucking industry. So there's less demand for trucks. You've still got a bunch of overhead as a trucking company owner. So you're going to be heavily relying on funds like this if you have to go that route. So um, you had some stats on total payouts, estimates, something like that. Let's hear it. Yeah. And, and kind of, I'm going to read the stats, but I also want to go a little bit into the context of the industry and what else was happening prior to the pandemic, because I think that really says a lot. So what you see is, and when when you're digging into the numbers is, Roughly 30% and perhaps more of the U.S. for hiring trucking jobs are being supported by government loans, according to the data released this week by the U.S. SBA, um, the companies that received basically the PPP loans. It also demonstrated the importance of the PPP program, which has been extended through August 8th to maintaining an adequate supply of trucks for shippers during you know, the economic recovery. More so now, it's looking like a stutter rather than a roar, right? Now, going back into the actual stats, the SBA oversaw the disbursement of approximately $7.6 billion of PPP loans of 150000 or more to 11,738 trucking companies. Now, what does that mean? You obviously need the context. You know, is 11000 a lot? Is it a little? Well, what that is, is it's material because out of 479,000 jobs, right, which covers all firms with the NAIC, NAICS trucking code, 31%. So 31% of primarily truckload and LTL employees got this money. So what does that mean for any market when you put $7.6 billion into it and you buoy 31% of it? I mean, think about that context, Nate. I mean, what yeah, so is that, so let me ask you this. To that yes. amount of money to any amount. So let me ask you this. So 31% of, is that of the companies that receive PPP loans or is that employees receiving that 600 bucks a week? Which one is that? So these are the PPP loans, right? This is okay. just the money to the, for the payroll to the company owners that was supposed to be, and the restrictions are, it needs to be spent with, I believe in 24 months. Okay. So they're supposed to use that money to be able to maintain their payroll. Correct? Correct. That was the intent. Keep people on the payroll, even if they can't come into the office, even if they've got to work from home, even if business has slowed down, let's make sure because the big context. And if you remember when they talked about this was the government didn't have the ability to put money directly in people's hands, right? When they, when they went to print the checks out, they had found the amount of people that got the original just check deposited some of these people won't receive that printed check because they didn't have bank accounts until August, right? So the government had to find ways to put money in people's hands once they 
stopped everybody from going to work. And they said, hey, you know, the only real way to do this is through one, give it to the companies that already have payroll set up to put it into their bank accounts, or two, distribute it through the state unemployment systems, which are the two big ones, right? And I think you just mentioned, right? The other one is coming up on a deadline as well. This pandemic unemployment assistance of $600 a week is going to, I would imagine, some portion of these people that have been laid off, right? Yeah. So, and another point on that too is, you know, I've heard just in talking with other people around the industry with hiring and stuff like that, they found it so difficult to try and hire, whether it's a driver or sales roles, operations, any kind of back office work, because they can't afford to pay somebody as much as they're going to make on unemployment. So when that unemployment does cut off, and I think, what is it it's supposed to be end of this month, right? Yeah. Do, do I people think, go back yeah, end to, of July. yeah. I mean, are they going back to work? Is the government going to extend it? We have no idea at this point, but I mean, that, it's a mess. It's a mess overall. I, I think it's definitely a mess. I, I think some of the big takeaways are if you just look at it from a broad point of view, right? Any amount of money is going to keep these people in business, right? But what we've seen is, and I, and I don't know if you know, you follow freight waves too much or anybody out there is really looking at like the tender rejections and what actually happened to what Nate, you know, you just mentioned is companies were scared to hire for one. They didn't want to have to fight with an unemployment rate that was greater than they were paying. But two, what you were seeing was trucking companies were not rejecting anything. I mean, they just spent two months out of business completely. They took every load offered to them, right? Which affected the capacity in the market. It affected the amount of loads hitting the spot market and the amount that brokers were actually going to move because asset companies took and rejected nothing once they went back to work. Well, now those numbers are starting to change. It's shifting, right? We went from zero imports on the West Coast for two, three months, right? All of the trucks migrate to the middle of the country. They're in the Midwest and you had a tightening on the West Coast, right? Everything affects everything in this industry, right? It's, it's one of the reasons I've always loved this business and this industry is at its core, it's supply and demand, right? When it shifts. That's what I always say. It is. And, and how these things are going to play out, I, I mean, I honestly don't think anybody really knows, but I think we can make some assumptions. What are some of your thoughts? I mean, where do you see this going, Nate? I mean, do you see this as just an overall tightening once they pull back the, the purse strings? Um, I, th I think it's, I think the end is not really, it's not going to happen next week or next month. I think it's going to be a long drawn out thing throughout the rest of the year, but here's my take on it. And this applies to not just a pandemic globally. This is any kind of fluctuation in the market. And I've said this time and time again, this is not the last time that we're going to see fluctuations. Think about the capacity crisis a couple of years back and then the market flip flopping the next year. Um, this stuff happens all the time, right? Whether it's from a global pandemic or government regulation or you name it, it could be a natural disaster that causes capacity to change because all the trucks are going down to, you know, the Gulf area to help out with hurricane relief. Anything could happen. I mean, you go back four or five years and you had all the, you know, the, the crazy amount of freight volume changing with the ports on the, on the West Coast and that just crippled a lot of the market. This is just one more reason as to why the market's going to shift. So what do I think is going to happen? Well, I think that businesses will eventually open back up. I'm not a medical expert, so I don't know how the, you know, how the COVID crisis is going to be solved by medical experts, whether that's a vaccine or 
herd immunity or I, I don't know. I, these are terms yeah. I've heard on TV that, that I'm not an expert on, but eventually when we do get back to some sort of normalcy or a new version of what normal looks like, people are going to be working again and people have been cooped up, not being able to do stuff. They're going to be out there spending money. And you know, as long as they're back to work and I think you're going to see a boom again. Right. And now here's what you're going to also see every trucking company that shut down because they weren't liquid enough to make it through this and they didn't get a PPP loan or anything like that. You might see another capacity crisis like we saw two years ago. So possibility, just my thoughts. Agreed. And, and I, and I, and I love that Nate, because you know, what I referred to earlier when we're talking about context, um, anybody that was in the market in 2017, when the ELDs went into effect, right? Perfect example of There's government, another one right there, ELDs. government regulation imposed on the industry, right? And what that did effectively was limit the amount that drivers could drive in any given day. And we could, we could debate for hours whether or not it was ethical, whether it was a safety issue, whether legally they should be able to drive this, whether they were penciling it in. Long and short of it was the government imposed a regulation that prevented them from driving above a certain amount. It shrunk the capacity in the market. And what happened? Rates went through the roof. I mean, seeing margins at 25, 35, 45, two, 300% on some loads because I mean, when I was in it and I had customers that were literally calling me going, Ben, I don't care what it costs to move this. This has to go, right? Some customers that I, I was working with in retail, they're like, if this doesn't get there, we have to shut the doors on a retail location. That can't happen. Like, doesn't matter what it costs, it's got to get there, right? Well, what did that do to the overall market? That I remember analysts were expecting that to be a year-long event, right? What really happened? It lasted about four or five months because the guys in the construction world, the guys in all these other blue-collar industries were looking at their peers in trucking and going, these guys are making $150,000 a year driving a truck. Why am, I, why am I doing this job? I can triple my income by going to do this. In the, same, in the same instance, you had companies that were used to outsourcing their logistics that went, hey, if we can make a 35% margin on top of our freight, why don't we get into the logistics game? So, you know, yep. when profit goes up, everybody runs at the market. So you had this explosion. I, I'll never forget talking to a lot of the larger carriers that I worked with August of that year going, Ben, we can't buy a truck. And by that, I meant like GM, any brand new truck, they were like, we're on a year wait for a brand new truck. Used truck yeah. prices went through the roof. You couldn't buy them. You couldn't, you couldn't get, you couldn't staff them and you couldn't buy the assets to profit from it. Well, what happened the year after, right? Everybody ran at the market. You had this huge oversupply of brokers. You had a huge oversupply of logistics companies that weren't really in this industry very long. And that's what's happened going into this pandemic. We still have the tail end of this oversupply of carriers going into 2020, end of 2019. So when I think they talk about this money, the context is a lot of these companies, because if you look at bankruptcies of trucking companies going into the, into the beginning of 2020, they are the highest they had been going into 17. Well, a lot of these companies that would have gone out of business had the pandemic not happened, have got a lifeline thrown to them. For better or worse, they got another six months of reprieve where they can pay their payroll. Gas prices went down. If they wouldn't have, they probably wouldn't have survived that. And they have got a lot of things going for them. They've got a government lifeline, gas prices are down. Those are their two basic expenses, right? But when that spigot shuts off, whether it's immediate or whether it's over four or five months, I can't imagine they're going to be able to weather that storm because there's only so much business going around. 
I'm with you. I agree. And you brought up a good point too, that I wanted to reiterate that, like you said, there, you know, it's not just one issue that's affecting the market. We had the tail end of everything coming into COVID from, from previous market issues that this stuff, you know, like I said before, it's going to continue on. It's not the last time something like this is going to happen. So the, I guess the, the takeaway as, as a broker is, and I've said it once, I'll say it again is, you know, don't expect the market to ever stay flat and don't build your business model around the expectation that the market's going to stay flat because it will always, always change. Do you have to be an economist? Hell no. That's not, that's not realistic. It's not your job. Um, can you use sources like freight waves to stay up to date and like do a little daily digest? Absolutely. And I highly recommend it. Those guys are always pumping out great articles, good content. Some of it's off the wall, but, and you know, some of it's mundane with tender rejection rates and cast index and all that stuff. But some people eat that stuff up, but regardless, as long as you've got your finger on the pulse and you know a little bit about what's going on, you can start to project, oh, hey, I saw this two years ago. I've got to start prepping here. Let me talk to my customers about possible changes in capacity and, and freight rates, because if you can educate them, that's a value add right there. So what do you think, what's your take on the so what for brokers overall with I, I, what's, what's coming up the rest of the year? I think that's a great There's no wrong that. answer. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's I think that's a great point, right, Nate? Is because there, there's a big difference in how some brokers operate from other ones, right? If you're that trusted advisor and you're that person shipper trust to know what's going on and to be able to help them solve problems, that's a great place to be, right? My opinion, a better place to be is to have some insight in what's likely coming down the road that only makes you more valuable to your customers, right? So one, I always found it was very important for me to be aware because you got to remember, they've got all of their problems to deal with on their own all day, right? Their job is not to be understanding what's happening in the supply market of the trucks, the capacity. They've, they've got to ship their product. They're worried about their customers and all of their company's issues, right? Most people, other than our industry, aren't in the shipping business, right? We've got to they realize- They don't like, care about they, it. They it's, don't care. It has to get done. They've got to, they want to sell widgets and they need to know that their customer gets that widget and the price of that widget doesn't go up too high. So they're not out there looking for this. That's why you can become a valued partner as a broker. That's why you can garner a higher rate and shippers are willing to pay it when they trust and don't have to worry about their risks going up. So the so what I say is, hey, you can absolutely operate under the so what, it doesn't matter, but you'll always be the last guy to know and you'll always be the last guy to react to what everybody that is in the know has done ahead of you, right? A lot of the clients I coach, Nate, you know, in this world and what we talk about is, if the market is likely to tighten up, even under normal scenario, right? Like let's just say produce is three months out, you don't start, pro you don't start prospecting and developing relationships once the market shifts because orange has started shipping today, you've got to be three months ahead of that. You've got to have a relationship and they've got to trust you before they're going to trust you with their most important asset, the products that they develop, make and sell to put in their customers' hands. And if you can't develop that trust prior to it, they're certainly not going to trust you when they're not aware of what's going in the market, right? I mean, as far as I know, anyone that I want to pay to help me with anything, I'm hoping they've got more insight into what they do than what I do, right? It's the beauty of the specialization, right? I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. And you just made me think about something. You're, you're in Orange Central down there, right? I mean, that is, Florida's like the, the orange capital. Absolutely, so, man. Oranges and watermelons. That is, so that's another good point right there, is not just, you know, there's market fluctuations with 
produce seasons, right? Seasonality throughout the year. So if you're a newer broker and you think, oh, it's just going to be a pandemic that's going to cause you know, the supply demand curve to shift. No, look at produce season. When, when there's nothing shipping out of Florida, what happens to the rates when you're trying to send a truck into Florida to deliver? It's ridiculous. Yep. Because you, you can't pay them enough because they, they got nothing to come back out with. Nobody wants but to go hey, on that when, peninsula. Yeah, you can only go south and you can only come back out north. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I personally love going there just because I got folks down there and the weather's great, but I'm usually not working when I'm down there. So, but hey, that's a side note. But yeah, you, you make a good point. No one wants to go down there when there's nothing to, nothing to pay them to get back out of there. So, and it's, you know, look at the rate shift when it is produce season. Oranges are shipping and, you know, there's a huge demand for trucks. So just a little, about that, little Nate, side right? caveat there. No, and I think it's a great point, right? Because even under normal market conditions, right? Like, and I had guys that were senior to me when I came into that business. And, um, you know, the one thing they taught me was, hey, if you got a slow week, they used to call it ambulance chasing, right? And ambulance chasing to a freight broker was, or the way I understood it was, hey, if you know where the market is likely to be tight, you can prospect there because if you're going to get somebody that is at least going to listen to you, that you can get some rapport with, they likely are having an issue, right? Even if they've got assets, yep. even if they work with a broker, no matter who they're working with, right? They are having some type of service issue. They are having late trucks because even if you don't ship oranges, like in your scenario, right? Let's just say, you know, you're across the street and you ship, I don't know, electronic goods, right? Well, what happens when the trucks come down here and oranges are paying four bucks a mile and you're used to paying $1.30 a mile? What do you think these asset companies do? They just all of a sudden, their trucks aren't running that well and they've got some service issues. Well, what's that driver really doing? He's going across the street picking up oranges at four bucks a mile instead of running his contract rated $1.20, right? <laughs> and to say just yeah. because you don't ship oranges oh, yeah. doesn't affect you, right, is I think naive to some degree. We'll put it that way. Yeah. I would agree. I would agree. That's a, that's a good point. And I, so ambulance chasing, I've actually, I've never heard that in the brokerage world. I've obviously heard it with uh, personal injury attorneys, yep. right? P. Ambulance chasers. Like there's a, there's a hospital here in Buffalo that if you walk out the front door, there's a massive billboard for, uh, for their office and their office is located right there just ironically, but ambulance chasing for a freight broker. I like that. I'm going to, we might, have to, we might have to revisit that in, in detail at, at another time. I dig it. Yeah, but it's, it's one of those things, right? It's, it's an actionable way to look at what we're talking about. You know, broader economics isn't always as interesting to everybody as much as I think it is, right? But at the end of the day, it definitely has implications in this industry, right? If you're a broker and you're looking to prospect, sure. if you know where it's going to be tight, that's your highest chance of opportunity, right? And all that's all it is, is we're never yep. going to know whether or not somebody's going to say yes we can't make a customer sign on with us. We can influence those things. And that's all sales is, right? Which is the majority of freight brokerage, right? How do you get more customers? You just want to increase the odds every time you pick up the phone that the likelihood of that person to talk to you and to need your services goes up, right? It's that simple. I'm with you. Yep. So what else? What, what, what else do we think about the current state of the market, COVID's impacts, the future? kind of a broad discussion today, but you know, we got to start somewhere. So what, what do you think? Anything else? Yes, I, I think one of the more interesting things that I, I had been listening to was, and, and not to go into the mundane thing, but like just the tender rejections and what I've heard from some of my larger colleagues, former colleagues that, that work some large national fortune 100 companies is that what most of them have seen is obviously through the fall, 
the market tightened up as the pandemic happened, right? Everybody fought for their business to be able to profit whatever they could, right? So what happens when everybody's fighting for the same thing? The price goes down, right? We saw the bottom fall out for the most part on rates. And what you're now seeing from the shipper's point of view is that they typically, you know, in a normal year might've only had 15 partners, right? Maybe 12 asset companies, maybe a handful of brokers, maybe one or two. But when you're, when you're playing the cheapest, the cheapest truck wins game, you end up with 30, 40, 50 partners, right? We're now seeing them have to deal with that issue that was created earlier in the spring. These big shippers that have 35, 40 partners, 12 brokers, because every day somebody said they had a cheaper truck and every day, and it makes sense, right? Everybody was worried. Nobody knows what the future has to hold and the uncertainty of a pandemic everybody looked for ways to cut costs. So cheap truck, cheap truck, cheap truck, people were giving up service because the other side of that was, who is gonna yell about service when there's a pandemic? You could always blame the pandemic. So you even had an <laughs> out by finding the cheaper truck, right? Everyone well, likes having someone to point the finger at. Exactly, it's not my fault, it's COVID, right? We don't have inventory, <laughs> they shut down China or we couldn't get it from there, so just bear with us and everybody did, right? And it was okay. But what I'm seeing yeah. now, what I'm seeing now with a lot of the brokers I coach and some of the guys that own trucking companies I work with is they're talking to shippers that are saying, we want to work with you, but we first now need to deal with the fact that we've got 40 partners that we need to either pick and choose who we're going to stay with or eliminate them altogether. So where service hasn't been an issue for the most part of the past few months, it's now becoming the forefront issue, which is only good news for our industry, right? For brokers, if you can sell on service and you can differentiate yourself from the assets, that's only more opportunities. That's more people for you to talk to. That's more likelihood yeah. right, that you're going to have somebody don't, to work don't, with. Don't say that to, uh, to certain carriers out there that have been bashing brokers, saying that there's price gouging, that brokers are thieves and serve zero purpose in the industry, yada, yada, yada. Um, that's a whole nother topic. But you, so on the, on the whole... The topic of having multiple providers like that too, what are your thoughts on, you know, is there, is there a, a number that's a sweet spot for a shipper that is a good, like if you were to do a co-op with, let's say five or six transportation providers, is that a sweet spot versus having 40 or 50? Is it less to manage? Do you, you know, what, what's your take on that? Because I think, you know, I think you can't, there's a too little amount and there's a too much amount. I, I definitely agree. As far as options go. And I think obviously it, it, it varies on, it's not only the size because, and I hear a lot, of, a lot of my clients say this when we first start working together is, this company's got a huge freight spend. We are going to do so well once we onboard them, right? And the fact of the matter is, that's only one piece of the information. Just like you said, there's a too little and there's a too much. And it's not just based on the amount of freight they ship, right? It's also based on how quickly their orders come in, right? How much time does this, the, the shipping clerk or the person tendering the loads have between when the orders come in and when they need to go out? And the shorter that amount of time, right, the less time they've got to deal with what they would like to do, right? There's, there's a, very, a very simple way to look at that is the longer you have between when your orders come in and when your orders go out, the more predictable it is. The more predictable it is, the more likely you are to utilize more asset contracts. Because from the trucking company's point of view, they can plan around it, they can line up back hauls, they can line up their front hauls, and they really can strategically map out how they can service that shipper the best because they know what's coming down the pipe, right? 
Now, as yep. that time window shortens, right? And let's just say you've got some shippers and I'm sure you've seen Nate where you've got like maybe less than 24 hours or 36 hours or 48 hours between the order comes in, it's got to go out the door, right? Asset companies don't provide, I don't want to say much value there, but there's only so much flexibility you've got when you've got known drivers, known yep. assets, right? That's where, that's where a broker is going to capitalize in the spot market and, you know, do their work, make their money by finding the best, best available um, option out there for a carrier. And think about the expedite world. You've got stuff that sometimes it's, it's a Friday night or a Saturday or a Sunday when no one's working or the majority of brokers aren't working or, you know, you name it. They might say like, I need this picked up right now and it has to get there tonight. So, you know, those are great opportunities to get it on as long as you know how to handle them. But yeah, and I'm with are. you. And they are, right? And, and I think there's, there's a tendency to just say good or bad, right? And I, I'm, I always do my best to stay away from generalizations, right? Nobody's either good or bad for the most part, just like brokers or, or asset carriers aren't good or bad, right? They have their strong suits and they have the things they're better at and they have the things that they struggle with just because of the way they're structured. The more predictable, the lower rate you're going to have, yes, that's ideal. But the reality of it is, is if you've got a product and you need to get it somewhere, and you need to get it there because the cost of it not getting there is extremely high, then you're going to want to work with a broker because they're the ones that are going to be able to not get you their next truck. They're going to get you the closest empty truck to your shipper that meets all the requirements you need them to and is able to get it to where you need it to go in the shortest amount of time possible. My favorite example of this is I am... Um, I shipped a lot, of, a lot of freight for one of the largest aluminum producers in the world, in, in the US. Um, so did a lot of work with Alcoa back in the day. Now, in some of these instances, and when I shipped a lot of steel or aluminum, if they didn't get those raw materials to the next mill, the shutdown that mill, the cost was in the millions of dollars, right? So oh, yeah. you're weighing, hey, does it make sense to double the rate to pay it to get there or to possibly shut this line down for 24 hours? Because to just pause it, you can't pause the steel mill, right? So the opportunity cost <laughs> on that end is phenomenal. Yeah. But I think a great point about that is to tie it back into what you said before of truck drivers saying, oh, brokers price gouge. Well, who do you think spent the past year, two years developing that relationship, that rapport and that trust and that knowledge of what's going on in the market so that I'm letting that shipper know, hey, the market's tightening up. It's Friday. It's a holiday weekend. If these ingots need to get to this place, I'm telling you, your rates are going to go up. And if we're going to be late, they're going to go up higher. But the reason they're also going up higher is, do you not think a truck driver is going to get paid more when he finds out about his load late night Friday and it's got to get there Monday, right? They're getting a piece of that pie too. But who's facilitating yep. that? You can only do so many things at once. And a truck driver is focused on driving a truck. They're not able to field 45 phone calls in an hour from all the different shippers and all the different other people they got to regulate with. That's the value brokers bring to the table, right? And it's real. And it's not only real to them, but like that's a problem that could not be solved by an asset company, right? And I think that's a perfect example. So when you say, what should the mix be? I mean, what are your thoughts? I mean, if, if you work with, a lot of these companies work with a lot of different agencies. What do you tend to see when they're prospecting? What are they looking for? Are they looking for companies that have one other broker? Or are they looking for mostly <laughs> assets? Uh, I can give you mixed responses. Uh, some of them are looking for whatever they can get their hands on. No, but uh, so 
here's my thoughts on it, right? Um, I've, I've talked to people and I've, I've worked with agents who, you know, they, they say that they are the sole broker that is working this customer's freight. And I usually don't believe that because I, they might think that they are, but what company would be silly enough to only have one human being that they rely on to get their goods moved from A to B when transportation is probably the last thing that they want to worry about. You got to have multiple options. Okay. Um, so what are people normally looking for? I think they're looking for an opportunity, whatever that might look like. Some people, they look for that very, very large fortune 500 company that does, Hey, they spend 500 million in freight spend a year. Um, some look for the smaller mom and pop shops cause they think they find that they can build a better relationship. They're going to have more time to spend on the phone to, to court that person per se. It's just going to be more of a, more of a personal touch. Um, and that, you know, tends to lead to higher margin. They're not hanging, they're hanging out in the spot market. They're not hanging out in bid season, you know, having to deal with all that crap. So right. I think uh, small to medium sized business is probably the, the sweet spot for a brokerage, especially if you're playing the spot market, asset based companies with a lot of assets, they're going to get into, you know, have opportunities to bid and, and hop on lanes for a lot of the bigger companies that can rely on dedicated assets, dedicated lanes, you know, stuff like that. So brokers, I think, I think that's what they're looking for. Small to medium business. Uh, but Hey, like I said, sometimes they'll take whatever they can get their hands on. And, and that's a really, that's a great point, Nate. And, and one of the things I wanted to add to that is, and this, every time I'm reminded of this, it strikes me, um, all of the time, no matter how much I've learned this, know this is that I think the three largest logistics companies, three largest three PLs in North America only hold one and a half percent market share together, right? Is that what it is? So who do we got there? You got to be talking like, like CH, XPO. XPO, Echo, probably TQL. Yeah. Like the four or five big names that are that are really in the three PL. And I heard it again on on a it was a, it was a Freightways interview I think I was listening to last night, and they were talking about whatever. Even if even if let's just say it's two and a half, because the actual number on how big that section is is you know varies from. I've heard seven hundred billion. What is the latest number you've heard on what the size of the trucking market is or logistics? It's dude, I have I have zero idea. The only yeah. stat I'll give you is that there's like. There's like somewhere between 22 to 25,000 licensed freight brokers, freight right. brokerage companies right now. Um, I don't have the exact number. I don't know the total spend. I know it, obviously it's right now. It's probably a bad time to gauge it, but um, I have no clue. It it's is, but I, I think I think the overarching point that I was kind of getting at though is that in every other industry that I know of, right? You know, the tech industry, you've got Intel, Microsoft. Like, there's always usually a big player that is able to get economies of scale and grab market share by being able to do it more cost effectively than everybody else. The thing is, and, and you and I talked about this, um, that interview we both listened to with the CEO of uh, USA Truck is why don't trucking companies innovate? Why aren't these logistics companies getting economies of scale? Because there's no first mover advantage. Getting there first doesn't provide any value. Innovating doesn't provide any value for the most part. And if somebody else does get there, they're just going to copy it six months later. And okay, yep. they're a little bit late, but they have none of the risk. So what you see is a huge diversification of people that play in this market. There is no other section of our economy that is this large that has all of these small businesses basically running the economy. And I think that's yeah. great for our country, right? Small businesses are what drives this country. It's not the big names that we hear about. It's not Facebook and Amazon that we all think are really the big generators of jobs and money. It's small businesses. 
You know, the 20 yep. trucks, the 10 trucks, the 20 person office brokerages, they're the individuals and they're the people that are really keeping this country moving. They're the ones that are getting yeah, the good one of the, services. One of the last stats I saw, uh, and don't quote me on this, was something like 93% of trucking companies have seven or less trucks. And then it was like 98% or 99% have 20 or less trucks. Uh, so you figure small or a small uh, business is defined roughly as under, what is it, like 50 or 100 employees or... 500 employees even maybe. I don't know what, what they're considered, but um, that's the majority. And you, you make a good point there. They're, they're the ones moving America right now, the spearhead. So It is. I was looking at, so just for some round numbers, it said, and this is from uh, one of the US.gov sites, United States business logistics costs reached $1.6 trillion in 2018. 8% yep. of GDP that year. I mean, those are just enormous numbers. It's a, it's a broad scope though, because you I mean, you got to think, what are you including in that in logistics? Logistics is such a yes. broad term, right? General term. You're, you're talking, you're talking import, export, um, you know, you're talking intermodal, air, ocean. Um, I'd be curious to see, we should try to pull that for, for another episode, what the actual rough estimates on truckload or even just, you know, I got one. Over so, the road, whether it's LTL, Expedite. I think we should truck. dig into that too in another episode, but just one of the bigger ones, it's about 700 billion or what the estimates are okay. right around now, yeah. um, give or take. Yeah, that makes sense. Because if you said the top three only control like one and a half percent, that makes sense. These are guys that are doing um, two, three, four, five billion a year in yep. sales. Sounds about right. So, yeah, I mean. Yeah, I mean. The numbers hold up. Five billion is a ton of money. Don't get me wrong. It's a good top line to have. But, but here's the, here's uh, you're the, playing a big, big game here. So. I think the greatest part about this, Nate, and, and one of the reasons why I was so excited to honestly do this podcast with you is that, you know, in every other industry, and I coach, I coach people in real estate, commercial real estate. I work with financial advisors. I work with all of these other industries, right? And they all have their pros and cons. This is the only industry that I've ever found, learned about, right? That you have an advantage being kind of the smaller guy, right? Like being able to do what I think businesses have done historically throughout the history of our country, that opportunity still exists in this world. It doesn't exist in a lot of other industries, right? Like, yes, you can leverage tech, you can come up with some new ideas, but there's definitely a learning curve there to some degree. Like I've always loved the fact that freight brokerage can give somebody even just with a blue collar background that has a good work ethic that can really just, you know, really put the effort in to go from making 50, 60 a year to six figures in a year and a half, right? Like not too many yep. industries give that people that opportunity. And then you've got the ability to develop your own company underneath it, right? How many small mom and pop companies do we know that can go from you know, tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars in a few years, right? It's a phenomenal yep. opportunity yep. for brokers out there. It is. It definitely is. So, well, good, good discussion. We're, uh, I, I want to wrap this up here with a couple of questions that we pulled off of Facebook here and, and get your take on them. Um, these are some basic ones. So, the first one comes from Shell on Facebook. Shell asks, uh, this is about if a truck breaks down as a, as a broker. So she asked, is there a service for cross-loading from a broken down truck to another truck? So her specific question, 
her scenario dealt with a reefer unit. And I think she was worried about the, the temperature on it. So, um, you know, you, you've been in the, in the business long enough. You've, you know, sat in the saddle and, uh, held the helm there for a while. You ever have a truck breakdown? Uh, it, yeah, once or twice. <laughs> I think if you've been in the <laughs> business, did you ever, like two ever weeks. have to do a cross load? Yeah. Cross docking. I mean, Honestly, I was fortunate enough to work with a larger enough organization that I would honestly call my peers and say, hey, if it was an area of the country that I wasn't familiar with, I was trying to pull from someone else that did, um, yeah. but did it the old fashioned way, found a cross dock, called it, negotiated it, made sure they had the availability to get my truck towed there, had to call a wrecker to get my truck there and had to coordinate the next truck to come and cross dock the load into it, right? And reefers, yep. now you got to be able to deal with, because if you can't time that perfectly and you can't cross dock it, then you absolutely need the storage, even if it's for a few hours, because you can't just let it sit out. Yeah. And uh, it brings up a good point on reefer. So very obviously a, a, a hotter or a higher likelihood for claims in that realm. Um, e- even so much so that I believe truck stop has a, an all risk cargo insurance. Um, I don't know. I think it's just called cargo covers car- or might just be called cargo insurance to them right now, but they stopped offering it to anything that's above 32 degrees Fahrenheit. They used to do it on a bunch of produce and all risk policy. It was like 12 bucks a load. Then it got bumped up to 24 bucks a load. And now it's 34 bucks a load. And it's only offered on frozen goods if it's, uh, if it's perishable. So obviously the risk is there. It's a dangerous subject they, and they are a dangerous uh, uh, industry or, or part of the industry to plan. But um they must have been losing money on, on claims that way. So if you're if you're dealing with reefer freight, it is uh, it will behoove you to have a good vetted carrier that has a good track record and make sure that they, they understand what the temperature has to be set to. Is it you know cycling? So but yeah, like you said, time it out and don't be don't think you can get away with ah uh, you know just it's only an hour it'll cool back down. That's how you get yourself in trouble. So well, the other good, question uh, too, Nate, just to that point. Right. Is exactly that. Like, Hey, making sure they're pulping the product right. And that when they load that, that it was at the right temperature too. Right. Cause I've absolutely seen things where shippers have tried to just get the stuff off their dock that may have not have been at the correct temperature to begin with and then blamed it on the driver, which then drives the insurance costs up. Yep. And again, that is the, uh, you know, one of the broker's jobs is to coordinate all of this. Make sure you're crossing your T's down your eyes. Did you check with the, or the, the shipper to make sure they understand what to expect? Does your driver know what temperature it has to be at? Did you double check? Are you getting pictures taken, right? This is all mm-hmm. stuff that there's not a right or wrong answer, but there's a lot of really good answers and there's definitely some really bad answers. So um, kind of brings us into our next, the next question here from Katina. Katina asked, why would a shipper use a broker when they have their own internal transportation. Well, we just kind of hit on one of the big value adds that a broker does. And some of these shippers, and we talked about it before, a company could be a shipper, broker, carrier. They can be all sorts of stuff. And produce is a, is a big, uh, big market for that. So um, it's kind of a self-explanatory. There's a value add that brokers offer. You know, a, a shipper, a lot of times probably just, you know, First of all, if they have their own trucks, they might not have enough trucks or the right kind of truck to move a certain good. So that's a, an obvious reason. Uh, but another reason is if you can diversify your own transportation options and have somebody else take the headache away from you, it gives you more time to focus on what you're better at, which is obviously producing some sort of good or service. So thoughts? Absolutely. I mean, I think there are things, right, that 
assets, you know, bring to the table. There are absolutely things that brokers bring to the table. It brings to mind one of the customers that I worked with for a long time. Um, I worked with a trucking company, Builders Transportation out of Memphis. Um, and, you know, this is an example of a trucking company that owns assets, right? Why they utilized my services as a broker was one, they're making commitments to their customers and they've got contracts and freights, right? Well, the one thing that's certain in transportation is things will go wrong. Trucks will break down. Things will take longer at shippers, right? Well, when they've committed on the front end of their customers that they're going to pick up, we'll just say 15 loads a day and three of their trucks that were supposed to pick up get stuck at the shipper because they needed to have overtime or whatever happens, right? They've got three less trucks. Well, we provide that flexibility to the industry. That's what brokers do. We provide the, hey, there's another five trucks in the area that are empty that can that meet your qualifications. They've got the right PP&E. I'll fill that gap. That's why there's an extra margin. That's why it's a little more profitable, but it's because it's last minute. It's way more work to negotiate these rates with the people that happen to be there. And then to verify, like you said, that the PPP, that the FMCSA requirements, that all of the carrier procurement requirements for that shipper are being met by somebody we found in 40 minutes to pick up in an hour and a half, right? It's a short amount of time to meet the requirements. Assets have months to be able to prepare for, right? Brokers are doing it in an hour and a half. It's increased risk and they're taking the responsibility, right? Just like you said, when we take acceptance of that load, we are responsible for it. If that truck doesn't do it, who's liable? The intermediary is, right? So there's more risk. Yep. And when there's more risk, you've got to charge for that. Absolutely. That's good. Good discussion. Good questions. I appreciate, uh, appreciate the feedback. And Ben, good having you on the, on the show today. We're gonna, I'm looking forward to some good future discussions with you. Any final thoughts? I've just really enjoyed it. Obviously, you know, um, working a lot of industries, this is one of my favorite. Um, you and I have talked throughout the years, just interested, like digging in and obviously hoping that we can help some people out there with a few things, give them a few actionable tips so that, you know, they can enjoy it as much as we have. Absolutely. Well, that's good. Until next time, go Bills. That wraps up this episode of the Midnight Freight Broker Podcast. Thanks for joining and make sure to leave a review and check out all the other episodes for even more great content. Check out the show notes for links to any articles and content that I referenced on this episode and feel free to add and message me on LinkedIn for suggestions for future topics. See you on the next episode.